Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, hello everyone. Welcome uh, to another Live Talk program exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. This is Jorge Fascinetti. Today we have a fascinating subject, which is the nomenclature of pituitary adenomas and the recent change and reclassification from the WHO or World Health Organization. The, re the reclassification was to narrow endocrine tumors or PITNETs. So with me today are uh, my co-host and Pituitary World News co-founder, Dr. Louis Blevins. As you all know, Dr. Blevins is a medical director of the California Center for Pituitary Disorders at the University of California, San Francisco, uh, UCSF. Also with us is Dr. Manish Agi. Dr. Agi is a frequent contributor to PWN and an attending neurosurgeon for the California Center for Pituitary Disorders. Professor of Neurological Surgery, uh, Surgery, sorry, and Principal Investigator at the USCSF Brain Tumor Research Center, and we're also delighted to welcome Dr. Ari Perry, and Dr. Perry is a Director of Neuropathology at UCSF. He specializes in diagnosing benign tumors of the nervous system, including those of the brain, spinal cord, and peripheral nerves. He is also a specialist in classifying the molecular genetics of tumors, which can be used to determine the best treatment. So thank you all for uh, taking the time for this important discussion. And I'm going to turn the whole program to Dr. Blevins and Dr. Perry and Dr. Aggie. So thank you very much, you guys, for joining us. Well, thank you, Jorge. Uh, and it's a pleasure to have Drs. Perry and Aggie with us today. I'm going to date myself and maybe share some things that Dr. Perry and Dr. Aggie don't know about me. but. Um, I paid my way through college and medical school working in a morgue at a hospital and uh, probably did about 500 autopsies for the pathologist who, after the first hundred, just turned the job over to me. Probably the only endocrinologist who's removed about 300 pituitaries. Uh, at that time, we used to take them out, and if it looked normal, I would drop it in a little bottle and we would send it to the NIH where they would extract growth hormone for growth hormone replacement purposes. So that... Uh, uh, would probably tell you my age. Uh, but I start with that story <clears throat> because at the time, pathology classifications were the old SNOMED mechanism. And I don't even remember what that stands for, but obviously things have changed, but those were the diagnoses and, and all of that. And along the way, the World Health Organization got involved. And at any rate, I sort of grew up with the fact that we had a classification of pituitary tumors that were based on the World Health Organization. And um, uh, there were lots of things that we can talk about related to that. So um, Dr. Perry, could you tell us about SNOMED, what happened to that World Health Organization and how we started classifying pituitary tumors probably 20, 30 years ago? Oh, wow. I, you know, SNOMED, I haven't really thought about in a while. Um, uh, first of all, I'm very impressed with your story. You've done way more autopsies than I have, so uh, kudos to you. But um, the WHO, definitely, I've been involved with now for many years, and it's, I think, kind of become the... Um, you know, the, the scheme that everybody around the world has been using. 
And with the pituitary, I think it's important to realize that it's there's two different specialists that are involved with the pituitary. The uh, neuro folks, including myself, but also endocrine pathologists. And we come at it maybe from a slightly different uh, perspective, over you know, mostly overlapping. So that's mainly what we're using for classification these days. Um, I haven't really thought about SNOMED in quite a while, so I'm not sure at what point it's kind of been replaced. Okay, so Manish, the terms that we've always thrown around are pituitary adenoma versus carcinoma, uh, aggressive pituitary tumors, etc. I wonder if you could talk about that classification, how that's really been the foundation uh, of uh, the designation of benign versus a malignant tumor. And we'll get into that more later as well, but uh, set, set the stage for us there. Yeah. So the, um, you know, when I see patients, I, I tell them that, uh, you know, when we look at cellar disease, there's a broad differential diagnosis of what we might be seeing. Um, the most common being um pituitary adenoma or Rathke's cleft cysts, but other entities we see in the cella would include craniopharyngiomas or arachnoid cysts. Um, and I tell them that the vast majority of those entities are um, what we would consider benign and uh, without, you know, the potential for malignant aggressive behavior. Um, and, uh, and so as a result, you know, the majority of those patients who have non-cystic or solid uh, tumors are dealing with benign tumors, and those are going to typically be pituitary anomas. And in fact, I don't think, I don't know about you, Lewis, but in my encounters with patients, I don't even mention that carcinoma exists um, because it's such a, um, a rare entity in the old classification scheme or the, the, the previous classification scheme. In contrast, when I see meningioma patients, I at least mention that there's such a thing as, you know, grade two or grade three, but for pituitary, I essentially tell them that this looks like a pituitary adenoma and I and the pathology invariably will always confirm that. So to me, and, and maybe to set the stage for the discussion about the changes in nomenclature, I always think of a pituitary tumor or a tumor in the cella. A cellar tumors could be anything. And you mentioned a couple of different possible diagnoses there. There are others as well. And then a pituitary adenoma would be a tumor derived from the uh, neuroendocrine cells of the anterior pituitary gland um, with the uh, whole host of posterior pituitary tumors as well. Um, what, uh, what, role has, what role does a World Health Organization play in all of this? Why should they have a say in the first place? And how did their classification of brain tumors come out in the first place? And why, why has that been so important over time? So um, I, I think um, prior to the WHO getting involved, and now probably decades ago, uh, there were so many different schemes and sometimes dramatically different schemes for classification of brain tumors and just about any kind of tumors you could imagine uh, that, you know, you couldn't really have a common conversation across uh, the ocean or even across uh, institutes in the United States because people were using different schemes. So I think it was the, the desire to 
to get something uniform. We're all speaking the same language. We all know what we're talking about when we say whatever term that we're using. Um, and I think that's why, you know, why the WHO has won out versus other entities. It's not entirely clear to me, but, but um, it does make sense that it should be something international like that. So their classification included pituitary tumors. Do you, do you, as a neuropathologist, feel that pituitary tumors are brain tumors? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, technically, it is an endocrine tumor, but the vast majority of these are uh, diagnosed by neuropathologists. And, and the reason for that is that they are taken out by neurosurgeons. And so in pathology, it's a very simplistic scheme. If a neurosurgeon takes it out, it goes to the neuropathologist. If some other surgeon takes it out, it goes to a different kind of pathologist. So even though it's an endocrine organ, it's most of the time is di it's diagnosed by a neuropathologist. And this is probably why the World Health Organization included it in its scheme of brain tumors. Not that it's a brain tumor, but because of the physicians who care for these patients are sort of in that field, I would suppose. Yes, and it was included in both the brain tumor WHO and the endocrine WHO. Okay. So Manish, any comments about the World Health Organization and uh, the classifications, or are there any other classifications that you like to use? Um, um, I, I think I would just echo Ari's point about how important it is to have um, uniform consensus around um, classifications. I mean, I think we can debate the merits of uniform guidelines as to how we should practice medicine or how we should operate, which is a different level. But I think without uniform consensus as to diagnoses, the field really becomes um, uh, uh, paralyzed in many ways. You can't do clinical trials. You can't have registries without that. And so I think this is really a core foundation. And, and we're, we are better off having a uniform guideline that some people have concerns about and work to modify or adapt in the future than have people, you know, spin off and create their own classifications. That's much more problematic for patient mm -hmm. care if that were to happen. So I think what the WHO does in, in producing these is very important. Yeah, I think it, Dr. Perry had mentioned this, sort of all speaking the same language, we know what we're talking about, and you brought up the whole uh, research issue, because that's important too, uh, for enrollment in the study, so that we get outcomes that are specific to certain disorders. But I think it's also important so that we can educate patients about what they have, because in this day and age, patients are using uh, um, social media, internet search engines, and things like that to learn more about their disease process. And there's already a wide array of misinformation out there. So it's nice to be able to label something as what it is. It's just like our names. You know, I say hello to Manish because I recognize that you're Manish. We want to be able to name what we have so that we can uh, relate to that information accurately and appropriately. So how about uh, designating tumors or referring to them by their hormone uh, secretory state, their invasiveness, the other histologic features? We do a lot of that at UCSF, and I find that to be very useful in treatment planning. Um, uh, the World Health Organization scheme, I don't think 
Uh, I think they've changed and gotten away from atypical pituitary adenoma. Could you talk about that, uh, Dr. Perry? Sure. Um, yeah, so, so until the 2017 endocrine WHO, uh, I think there was an attempt very similar to meningiomas, which, which makes sense to try to grade these tumors um, in terms of pituitary adenoma benign, a typical adenoma is something with a higher malignant potential, and then carcinoma is fully malignant. And that's similar to meningioma, atypical meningioma, anaplastic meningioma. The problem, somewhat analogous to your prior question, is that uh, people had different definitions for what's an atypical adenoma. And despite best efforts, um, we couldn't get good reproducibility uh, from one center to the other, or or even once people stuck to a, a single definition, it just didn't correlate very well with predicting the behavior of these tumors. So uh, since 2017, they've kind of tossed that out and focused more on uh, mainly hormone production and other pathologic uh, features that help define some of these subtypes of adenoma that, that we know are more aggressive. It seems to me that, uh, so one of the markers that we often look at is the KI-67 or MIB-1 labeling index, you know, and um, it's interesting because we'll see these extremely large invasive tumors and the labeling index is very low. And we'll yes. see other tumors that are smaller and the index is high. And it seems to me that this is more of a reflection of the biology of the tumor at the time the sample was obtained, or maybe even the part of the tumor where the sampling was done. If you sampled another part, you might see something different. Uh, and that's sort of confusing, but I've always found that if it's high, that's useful. Uh, if yes. it's low, I think it's less predictive. What are your thoughts about that, Manish? I agree, um, and, and we do see that in clinical practice where we make special note of um, pituitary tumors with KI-67s and 7%, 6%, or you know sometimes even higher than 10%. Um, and uh, I also agree that spatial sampling can be an issue, but I think to your point, if there's any one region or any one moment in time where that high a percentage of the tumor is dividing, then that it's reasonable to consider that as a surrogate for aggressive behavior. And in some ways, I would argue that it's potentially a better surrogate than cavernous sinus invasion, um, uh, which I think is a little bit harder to define when it's subtle and, you know, harder to conclusively define when it's subtle. Whereas I think a high KI-67 to me is, is much more of a red flag. There are some other uh really unused, except in a few centers, classifications like the Hardy classification for growth and size and all of that. But I, I, I haven't found that to be useful. How about yourself, Manish? Now, I mean, it, it's something that, you know, in peer-reviewed journals will ask you to provide information on, but it feels more academic than, than actually useful in day-to-day -day practice. So, Dr. Perry, you had related earlier about the endocrine groups and the neuropathology groups, and um, one of the principal reasons we're having this uh, 
discussion today is that we have recently, really sort of heading up over the past few years, heard about this new classification scheme or, or terminology for pituitary tumor, calling them pit net tumors or pituitary neuroendocrine tumors. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about who started this movement uh, and uh, how it caught fire? And uh, sure, and, and sure. why? Let's talk about why. What 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 was the thought that this how why this would be potentially useful? Yeah, so it really started, I think, with the endocrine groups, um, and the reason for that is if you look uh, throughout the entire body, there is a lot of overlap in uh, tumors that we call neuroendocrine tumors or neuroendocrine neoplasms. In terms of the way they look pathologically, ultrastructurally, um, biologic characteristics, um, and, and other than the hormones they produce, there's a lot of overlap. So there was a there's been a movement in the last 10 years maybe um, to classify all of these as as neuroendocrine uh, neoplasms. And then within that group, uh, neuroendocrine tumors are the ones that are well differentiated. Neuroendocrine carcinomas are the ones that are poorly differentiated. And it's it's really been helpful, I think, in the endocrine community. The, the problem is that they're not all the same in different body sites. There are some unique features in different areas, including the pituitary. So it's helpful, but there are also differences. And so we have to remember not only the similarities, but also the differences. So I think the first time it came into the pituitary side was with the International Pituitary Pathology Club. They met in 2016 and, and published a paper on proposing including them in the, the neuroendocrine tumors in 2017. I was not involved in that meeting, but I was three years later at their, their next meeting. Uh, and we, we again debated the whole issue. And I, I think, again, there are advantages and disadvantages to this terminology. I think biologically it's more accurate, but of course adenoma has been around for 90 years. So so it's hard to change something that's so ingrained in, in the literature. Yeah, I, I respect the fact that these tumors are, are neuroendocrine tumors, uh, but, but they are so different. And uh, I, I know that a lot of neuroendocrine tumors elsewhere are very well differentiated, and you often don't know they're malignant until they have uh, proved metastases. So the you know, the indolent bronchial carcinoid that will, you know, 40% of those right. patients have lymph nodal metastases at diagnosis, even though the tumor looks relatively benign. It's called a carcinoid because it's carcinoma-like, I guess. Um, and maybe pituitary tumors are the same. They look benign, but certainly some of them do prove to be carcinomas. And we're going to talk more about all of that with our, 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 our review article that we're going to do. But uh, when you think about pituitary tumors that... Uh, are so-called benign tumors that cross tissue planes, uh, invading the cavernous sinus, penetrating the dura, uh, or what have you. If that's a lung tumor or a thyroid tumor that's crossing a tissue plane, that's considered a malignancy. Yet we still consider pituitary tumors that behave that way as a benign lesion that just happens to be locally invasive. 
So I, I see some truth to the fact that we need to figure out a better way to identify these tumors and classify them. Uh, but uh, recognizing that they are in a different tissue and the behavior is different and even the survivability is different. Uh, I question whether or not we need to step away from what's been convention for, for many, many years. Manish, what are your thoughts about the, the, the proposed uh, nomenclature term? Yeah, I mean, I think having heard the biologic arguments for considering it a neuroendocrine tumor in terms of the markers that it shares with other neuroendocrine tumors and, um, you know, the secretory phenotype, um, I think it's, uh, I'm not opposed to the biologic reasoning that goes into it. I think the challenge becomes, um, you know, when you're grouping this with other entities that everyone agrees are more or have greater potential for aggressiveness than a pituitary tumor. Um, I, you know, it, it creates a lot of onus on the clinician to, you know, um, present that information to the patients um, because I think the internet can be a place where patients go for information and, you know, neuroendocrine tumors as a general category can be a very daunting thing for patients to see. And, it's it's unique in so many ways. I mean, I think I when I think about the other CNS malignant tumors that patients that I see, meningioma, glioma, they they type in the entity on their on their pathology report and they'll get pretty accurate information. I think in this case, if they leave out the word pituitary and get some hits that are just neuroendocrine tumors, they may see some stuff about carcinoids and other things that are alarming. So I, I think it creates some challenges for sure. Um, even if the biologic rationale is, is fairly sound. So Jorge, as a patient, what do you, what do you want from your doctor? What do you want to hear? How specific do you want a diagnosis to be uh, that's going to lead you to do further self-exploration and discovery online about what condition uh, <laughs> you might have? Yeah. Well, obviously, um, you know, simplicity is, and, you know, the ability to, uh, understand, you know, what the physician is saying. And like you're, like Manish is saying, you know, you go to the internet and you have to make sure you put in the right term. And I think that's what we heard from other patients when we, when we asked the question, what do you think of this, you know, changing the name, the, the uh, perceived complication. It may be simplifying it for um, classification purposes, but from the patient perspective, it may, it may feel more confusing. Sure. So confusion is now, you know, never a good thing when you're diagnosed with something new. So let me let me ask another question of Ari. So if I gave you three or four tissue samples, one was a pituitary adenoma, another was a person with a bronchial carcinoid, another was an insulinoma, and let's say the next one is medullary thyroid carcinoma, and I just gave you H&E slides of the center of the tumor, would you be able to tell which was pituitary? Are, are these really, truly distinct enough to retain their original names? Or really, do they all look the same and you wouldn't be able to pick and choose between those? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think probably other than the medullary carcinoma, which would look uh, obviously malignant, the rest, the rest of them would look very similar. 
at least on the initial exam. Now, if I had the chance then to do additional hormone markers and, you know, some other immunostains and special studies, uh, I could probably tell you which one was the pituitary, but not initially, not at first glance. Mm -hmm. So it's those additional things that we see on the pathology report that you're doing that confirm uh, that it's pituitary origin and... uh... And yes, and, and even in rare cases, we we actually see metastatic neuroendocrine tumor to the pituitary, and it can look very confusing because it, it, it can look all the world like a pituitary adenoma. Yeah, small cell carcinoma can metastasize. Uh, is that easy? Absolutely. That's probably more aggressive lesion. Melanoma is a neuroendocrine tumor of the skin that can metastasize. I think of melanoma as a neuroendocrine tumor. Um, and then, of course, I've, I've had a couple of people who have had uh, Merkel cell tumors, uh, but none yes. metastatic pituitary. But I imagine they all have their own distinct features, even though they're grouped into the neuroendocrine carcinoma. That's correct. But even with these other tumors, I refer to them by a different name, not a skin neuroendocrine tumor or a, a lung neuroendocrine tumor. We still call them carcinoids or small cell carcinoma or... Although some of that is also changing. So carcinoid is now called neuroendocrine tumor grade one in both the GI tract. Well, well, the lung pathologists are somewhat resistant. So (laughs) most of them are still resisting that change, but definitely in the GI tract, they don't use carcinoid uh, much anymore. Interesting. Fascinating. So... um, we have this new proposal. Manish, you attended a conference recently. I wonder if you would tell us about that conference and uh, this information was reviewed or discussed and share with us some of the highlights of that conference, if you would, please. Yeah, so, um, you know, this year as the WHO in a sort of, from what I understand, a transitionary move has um, created a label that's sort of pituitary adenoma slash pituitary neuroendocrine tumor, or like a hybrid label, but um, there was a desire to use this window of time while both names are circulating out there to try to have some multidisciplinary dialogue about uh, about the 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 change the name change and and you know uh, the implications of it. So the ver- uh, the various societies have sent representatives, so endocrine society, pituitary society. I was a representative of the International Society of Pituitary Surgeons, patient advocacy group sent a representative, and, and the meeting is uh, Panaman or Pituitary Adenoma Nomenclature Working Group. Um, there was a Panaman one that I wasn't a part of a few months ago, and this was Panaman two that we recently attended. And the first meeting created a position paper, and the goal is for the second meeting to publish the, a summary of the discussion. And so it was a two-day workshop um, and uh, we started with some basic science and some pathology about the, the scientific rationale for the name change. We then talked about um, you know, the, the implications for clinicians and patients and, um, and, and used it to sort of summarize some concerns that might arise even if the scientific rationale may be justified. So could you share with us some of the conclusions that were arrived at, or at least the direction the conclusions seem to be heading? 
so, you know, the, the patient advocacy groups had some interesting um, uh, comments and, you know, one that I think uh, clinicians may gloss over, but, you know, clearly meant a lot to patients. And there was a lot of testimony from patients that the representative of the advocacy group read, but there was definitely concern about the word tumor appearing in the name uh, from a patient perspective. Um, and I think we were very respectful of that and, and listened to those concerns. Um, there was concern that, um, you know, that, uh, a, you know, to a, a medical community that, as we all know, is not a general internist community that may not be super well-versed in, um, in, in this disease, if they get a radiology report on their patient that, you know, says suspect pituitary neuroendocrine tumor, because a lot of times radiology reports will include a differential diagnosis that readily uses pathologic terms. And if that term appears in a radiology report, could it, rather than triggering a referral to endocrinology, in, in some cases inadvertently trigger a, a referral to medical oncology? Um, and although we were you know, not expecting that to happen, there were a few folks who testified that they had experience with something like that happening. Um, then uh, there were concerns raised about, you know, the, it's not necessarily the domain of the WHO, but when it came to classifying the, the behavior of the tumor, in addition to the nomenclature, it, 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 I believe it's now classified as having um, aggressive potential rather than uncertain potential. And, uh, and that creates a categorization that, you know, created uncertainty and, and chatter around, you know, would this affect people's ability to get life insurance? Could this affect, could this be considered a pre-existing condition if we were, you know, if we were to go back to a, a world where in health insurance were somehow, you know, uh, uh, difficult to obtain in a setting where you had that in your chart? And so these were some of the questions that were raised, um, and so I, I would say nobody really raised any questions scientifically. I mean, I think I'm sure there are scientists who would question the science behind the classification, but perhaps they just weren't invited to the, but the, the audience for the most part was, was on board with the idea that biologically these are neuroendocrine tumors. It was more the implications that we focused on. And Dr. Perry, any comments about that? Uh... Information. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's uh, quite interesting because actually when I was at that international meeting I mentioned to you, I, ac I actually raised that scenario of pre-existing condition because I was worried about that. And I can't remember who it was that told me that they actually had some of the opposite experience as well meaning that in these one of these cases where they wanted to use, let's say, a somatostatin analog for therapy or something like that, that the insurance rejected it because this is clearly a benign disease. So why do you need something like that? Um, so I think that there definitely are arguments in, in both directions. I Now, the, the word tumor, that's that's interesting to me because that to a pathologist doesn't mean it's malignant. It just means it's a neoplasm. It could be benign, could be malignant, could be in between. 
so, so I don't know, was it, Manish, what was the specific concern with the word tumor? Um, I mean, I think it was really, and I agree with you medically, and you know, I don't personally have a problem with that term, and I, I use it all the time you know, with patients, as I'm sure Lewis does as well. Um, I think, you know, patients, though, I will say are sometimes surprised to hear the word and they really, you know, to the lay person, there is a correlate, there's a association of tumor with malignancy. Um, But I think that's, you know, more a a matter of, you know, providers educating patients. And I, I don't think that's an insurmountable barrier. It is interesting. I mean, obviously, a large number of tumors don't have the word tumor appear in their name, and and I can understand mm-hmm. the symbolic meaning. But it, I think it's a, uh, it's something that should be addressable. But it was important to hear that. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, at the end of the day, patients are stakeholders, and we need to respect that. Yeah. If you if you go back to your Robbins textbook of pathology from the mid '80s, as I would. Uh, it talks about an adenoma being a benign uh, tumor of adenomatous tissue, right? So pituitary adenoma implies benign, pituitary tumor implies that you're really uncertain of the behavior, which Rob probably is really more accurate in a way uh, because we do that, see. That was one of the arguments for using the, the term because the, you know they're not all benign. Some of them are aggressive and we can't always predict which ones will be uh, aggressive. So I... Uh, I was a slow convert, I have to admit, and, and uh, I was worried about the tumor, the, the uh, nomenclature initially, but I've kind of come around to to using it much more than uh, than I used to. I, I like the way you, you said that, a slow convert. I would say that I'm going to be a slow convert as well, uh, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the literature and the review the, the literature reviews by physicians and patients alone, because there's important information there about the treated and untreated natural history of these conditions that if you search pituitary neuroendocrine tumor, unless the engines are going to link that to pituitary adenoma, you're going to miss out on, on a lot of that information uh, that can be relevant mm-hmm. when writing papers or trying to learn things as a patient. So a quick question. So is this a period where there are comments being sent to the WHO from, let's say, patient groups or other groups to whether agree or disagree with this? Or is it basically a done deal and it's something that you have to, well, have to deal with? That's a great question. Um, I, I think there have been comment periods for other physicians to weigh in. I don't recall ever seeing a comment period to include the patient uh, no. groups, they probably should. Uh, but I, I, I'm not, you know, so I, I'm not 100% sure about that, but I don't remember seeing it. Yeah. But, um, I, we, we published, uh, I think, something initially in 2018, which is when I first learned about it. Uh, and it was a question that was asked in a conference with Dr. Corbinitz asked a question, what do you, what do you think? And I said, you know, does it, does it affect how I'm being treated? Uh, then I care. If not, I really don't. <laughs> uh, so, and then later, you know, as this took hold a little bit, we did a, a quick survey that was very interesting just to ask people, given what you know, how would you vote? And the answer was something like 63 to 64% against, but a fair amount of open-ended 
you know discussion as well which gives you give us gave us a really interesting perspective on how much emotion there is in this and and little knowledge you know sure. uh, specific so which is basically what patients deal with you know the, how how does it affect me and is it going to uh, do things uh, make things easier if you, if you look at other nomenclature changes in other arenas the I think the uh, field that has been no, most notorious for changing the name of things is microbiologists and uh, infectious disease specialists. You know, all the bacteria have undergone a name change that something I would recognize as like Branamella, I think that's called something else now. Uh, Pneumocystis is called something else now. So in plenty of other bacteria as well, when you ask them why, they say, well, we learn new things about it. We're able to sort of more well-define what this organism is as so have a, a new name. So Dr. Perry, is there something new that we learned about pituitary tumors that we didn't know that has prompted this change, you think? Um, there are new things we're learning about subtypes, but I don't think there's been a major change that, you know, that, that triggered this, uh, change in terminology other than the, the, well, there were several reasons, some of which I think you've, you've already touched on. Um, you know, the invasion, the fact that some of them are aggressive. Um, one of the things that's rare but is awkward is if you have a pituitary adenoma that then metastasizes, now it's a carcinoma. Do you have to go back and change your prior report because it's now a metastasizing adenoma, which makes no sense, mm -hmm. whereas a metastasizing pit net is analogous to other neuroendocrine tumors. That's that's mm -hmm. well known. But on the other hand, this this also the arguments against this. This is where endocrine pathologists have a different perspective than neuropathologists because we're more comfortable with benign tumors invading. I mean, pilocytic astrocytoma is a right, grade one yeah. tumor and it invades for example, craniopharyngioma, same thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not not as simple as I think either group maybe initially thinks it is. Manish, do you think this name change is going to in any way affect research dollars that become available for if it's a neuroendocrine tumors or more money for research there than if we're studying pituitary adenomas, for example? Uh, there were people who um, asked that at, at our conference. I, you know, I, I think certainly at an NIH level and probably beyond, I don't think so in the sense that the people who do peer review that, you know, leads to funding decisions or even the consultants who advise for funding allocations, regardless of the name, they know that the majority of of the disease is, uh, is clinically and histologically benign um, and, you know, would allocate funding dollars accordingly. Um, and I don't think the name change per se would 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 alter that significantly, in my opinion. Okay. So, Dr. Perry, um, let's presume that we're all going to accept this uh, pit net uh, nomenclature. What what are the next steps, or what what can you, as a neuropathologist, do for Manish and I to be able to help our patients understand the diseases more? What what does this open up to you in drawing parallels from other other neuroendocrine tumor types and things like that to sort of, if we will, advance the understanding of the pathology of these lesions to help us make clinical decisions? 
Yeah, great question. I think for me, it's it's somewhat frustrating because I would like to be able to provide really accurate predictive information. And we've made great strides in doing that in some of the other brain tumors that I see, but much less so with these tumors. Um, they don't seem to be driven by uh, mutations of genes in most cases, you know, where we can predict, well, this one's going to be aggressive and this one's not going to be aggressive. It seems to be more of an epigenetic disease in most cases. So at this point, I still can't predict in, in most of the tumors which one is going to be more aggressive and which one's going to be very indolent and surgically curable and so on. So I, I hope we do find something in the future, but we're not there at this point. Manish, your thoughts and what, what would you like? Uh, what would you like to see the next steps from the working group that started this change in the first place? Uh, yeah, so we, we spent some time talking about this um, and many of the people at the conference, you know, really agreed that this is probably where our efforts are best spent is, I you know, looking for markers that, would help us predict aggressive behavior. There were people in attendance who had their own thoughts about, I think, the ATRX gene and other <clears> ones <throat> that were mentioned. Um, but the problem becomes that, um, you know, the whatever alterations, it, the, the aggressive behavior is a relative minority of pituitary tumors, and whatever alterations that you, you know, propose to look at mostly have been studied in small case series of tumors that were aggressive. But when you expand the cohort and look for alterations, they will come up in tumors that are not aggressive. And uh, so the sensitivity specificity is, has been an issue for most of the markers. But, and, you know, I think that to your point on the previous atypical classification, that was an attempt to do exactly this. And, mm -hmm. and it unfortunately got, you know, taken back, but hopefully, um, as we develop more um, algorithms for managing big data and multi-institutional collaboration and machine learning and things, we'll be able to identify some combination of alterations that capture the most aggressive tumors. So let me get just sort of turn the clock back a little bit. Uh, we talked a little bit about the labeling indices and things like that. So that was sort of the primary uh, probably in addition to other things, but a uh, bit of data that we were basing our findings on to determine if a tumor was atypical. If I understand correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but then when we found that that really wasn't as predictive, we didn't stop doing that immunochemical testing and counting, which I'm delighted about because I thought you're going to take that away. I kind of like to know if it's high. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think in the pituitary, it ends up being uh, a, a biomarker that is useful, but it's a very blunt tool. Yeah, uh, There's a lot of exceptions to the rule. So if you look, for example, at pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, it actually works you know, quite well. You can do grade one, two, and three, even though they're all well differentiated and, and do some prediction, but it doesn't work at all for the pituitaries other than, you know, if it's really high, we worry about it and, and there's a higher chance. 
but a lot of these are not very high. They're, you know, 2%, 3%, 4%, and there's not a, a big difference. So I think it does help us identify some aggressive tumors, but it's a very small fraction. You know, but the question is, do we really know? Uh, if you look at pituitary carcinoma, probably about half, I don't remember the latest figures, but about half of those tumors are diagnosed at postmortem examination on people who died of some other cause. You know, you find tumor in the spinal cord from CSF spread or another lesion in the, in the, in the cranial cavity or lesions in the liver histopathologically. And, uh, that there, and these were usually, uh, patients that had a history of a reasonably aggressive pituitary tumor uh, during life, but no one knew it was a cancer, but it turned out to be a cancer. Some of these tumors spread down and drop metastases to the cervical nodes. And without the, with the classification of studying everybody, doing lymph node studies and, and liver biopsies and things like that, we really don't know the utility of those uh, immunochemical studies that you're doing in the lab. Um, yeah, I mean, I really hope that uh, we find better ones. I think KI67 is helping, but again, again, I think it's just identifying a very tiny fraction of tumors that we worry about. Um, so I, I still hope there's better ones out there that we just haven't found yet. Just for the benefit of our listeners who probably have no idea what KI67 uh, is, would you explain that uh test to them, please. Sure. So KI-67 is a protein that's expressed during uh, the time that a cell is, is uh, dividing and proliferating. So it's, it's basically giving us uh, an estimate of what the fraction of cells in the tumor are that are actively proliferating or actively growing, dividing and growing. So it gives us a sense of how rapidly a tumor is, is growing. Uh, but uh, it's not nearly as uh, one-to-one as, as, as we hope. There must be other factors involved uh, in that as well. So sometimes we see a tumor that's rapidly growing on MRI studies, and yet our KI-67 is, is still low. So we, we don't always, it doesn't always explain things. All right, very good. Um, so in all, what do you think the advantages are of this uh, change in nomenclature? I think it's uh, mainly one of unifying a, a tumor type throughout the entire body rather than a big advance necessarily in uh, neuropathology or in endocrine pathology in the, of the pituitary itself. As, uh, you know, as, as you said, it's whatever you end up calling it, we, we have a lot of experience with it. We know, we know what adenomas are, are, are like, even if we change the name to PitNet, uh, we've seen them for many, many years. Um, so I think it's more of understanding the biology. Unfortunately, probably like what you said with the microbiologists, you know, we understand more about the biology, but it's the same bacteria it was when That's we called right. it a different name. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's a good point. Uh, Manish, any final thoughts on the, the nomenclature and future directions? Uh, 
No, I mean, I think, um, uh, as you all said, it, it's a change, but it, it, it's one that, um, um, you know, I think given time providers and patients, you know, can adapt to, um, and I think at the end of the day, the most important thing we all do is our jobs, whether it's taking out tumors or looking at them under the microscope or, you know, counseling patients about their hormonal issues. And none of that changes with this. So, and if anything, as we discussed at the conference, it's important not to get too fixated on this and lose sight of the need, you know, to really advance the field because this is just a name change. It's not necessarily an advance. Um, it's just a framework. Yeah. On my end of it, it's certainly requiring a lot more explanations to patients, but that's not a bad thing because it's all about educating people about their illnesses and establishing that dialogue and that openness uh, and communication there. So Jorge, uh, <laughs> any final thoughts from the patient now, now knowing that you had a pit net tumor <laughs> ten, <laughs> 10 years ago, but we just didn't call it that? <laughs> We're changing your diagnosis. No. Not really. I think it's, I, I, I have to agree with you. It's a, uh, an issue of uh, branding, you know, to, to speak in marketing terms and communication yeah. terms. So again, like any branding, if you brand it correctly and the, the description is accurate and it makes understanding of what you have easier for patients and it doesn't affect anything else. You know, the issues that were brought up as insurance and, you know, confusion and things like that, that may, you know, are, are big things for patients, given the issues that they deal with on a daily basis from, you know, insurance companies and, you know, understanding very, very complicated diseases. So um, for us, for me personally, if it, if it makes it easier to explain, easier to understand and easier to understand why certain decisions are made, then it's, you know, it's good. So, yeah, well, this this whole notion of name changing and all of that is something that I've been interested in my entire career. I, I yeah. remember when I started out in my first job at Emory many years ago in 1993 that I, I I felt like some of these tumors were possibly malignant. We just called them adenomas, but they then again crossed the tissue planes. And I wanted to figure out what could we do to try to identify those patients who were going to have the more aggressive tumors. And that's about the same time the KI-67 uh, immunochemistry was just starting. And you know, we knew normal pituitary was 0.5% to 1%. And tumors that were probably benign were under 2% or 2.5%. And anything over 7% was a concern. Uh, I'll never forget the highest I've ever seen was about 67% in a patient with a corticotrophadenoma that was malignant and growing, growing everywhere, basically. Uh, and uh, and I thought that was going to be the holy grail, so to speak, but it's not. So I, I hope that in my uh, lifetime, I'm able to see some classification system where we can uh, decide who gets aggressive therapy and who gets followed at a uh, at a reasonably close distance, but no without without aggressive treatment. So uh, maybe this is just one step along the way to that uh, realization that we can. Uh, uh, let patients know up front we need to continue with aggressive therapy and, and you need radiation or whatever else is the the, uh, the treatment of the day in the future. Um, well, it's a great discussion. Thank you uh, all for participating today. Um, and uh, Thanks we'll, for having we'll, me. Yeah, thank, we'll you. All, thank you. 
we'll all be on the same wavelength when we see the pathology reports and uh, talk to our patients. And, and uh, you know, it reminds me of uh, another thing that's going on in the field of neuroendocrinology is that the uh, diabetes insipidus groups of patients want to change the name. Yeah to vasopressin <laughs> resistance or vasopressin insufficiency, depending on whether you have nephrogenic or neurogenic. Just because most of these poor patients go to see a doctor or go to the hospital and they say they have diabetes insipidus and their question they're asked is, when did you last take insulin? Uh, you know, so that's a good reason to have a name change because a lot of physicians are clueless about DI. A lot are clueless about uh, pituitary tumors as well. And hopefully this will will at least give them, them the sense that, wow, this is something really pay attention to. I've heard of neuroendocrine tumors, or I don't know what that is. I better send to someone who can get some answers. So, uh, But thanks again. It's a great conversation. Uh, Jorge, any final thoughts? No, thank you so much for taking the time. I think that any time there's an opportunity to discuss these things that are very complicated and we have an opportunity to bring, uh, you know, experts like Dr. Perry and Dr. Agi and yourself to talk about this. It provides a great opportunity for to educating people and hopefully make your jobs easier so people are, you know, a little more uh, aware of these things. So thank you. Thank All you for right. taking and, the time. Uh, uh, so again, uh, this is a live talk with uh, Pituitary World News. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.